Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 966 of the Juicebox podcast. Haley is an adult living with type 1 diabetes, and she's a crime scene investigator. It's pretty cool, huh? We're going to find out all about it in just a moment. While you're listening, don't forget not to remember not to forget. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. While you're listening, please remember that nothing you hear on the Juice Box podcast should be considered advice, medical or otherwise. Always consult a physician before making any changes to your healthcare plan or becoming bold with insulin. If you like comfortable things like bed sheets, towels, and clothing, go to CozyEarth.com. If you see something you like, use the offer code JUICEBOX at checkout to save 40%. You and I could be drinking the same drink every morning. I drink AG1, and you could too. DrinkAG1.com forward slash JUICEBOX. And for you newly diagnosed folks, don't forget to check out the Bold Beginning series. It's available at JuiceBoxPodcast.com. You can also find a list at the feature tab of the private Facebook group and, of course, in every audio app uh, under the sun. That's where you can find the podcast. Everywhere you get audio. This episode of the Juice Box Podcast is sponsored by Omnipod. Omnipod makes the Omnipod 5 and the Omnipod Dash. Find out more. Get started today at omnipod.com forward slash juice box. You want to learn about the Omnipod 5 or the Omnipod Dash? My site has it all. You can even ask to go on a test drive with the Omnipod. Omnipod.com forward slash juice box. When you support the Juice Box podcast by clicking on the advertiser's links, you are helping to keep the show free and plentiful. I am certainly not asking you to buy something that you don't want, but if you're going to buy something or use a device from one of the advertisers, getting your purchases set up through my links is incredibly helpful. So if you have the desire or the need, please consider using Juicebox podcast links to make your purchases. So my name is Haley, and I am a type 1 diabetic of about four and a half years now. I don't remember the exact diagnosis date. So it was July or August of 2018. And I am a crime scene investigator. I've been doing that for about as long. I think I was in my job for about two weeks when I was diagnosed. How old are you now? I am 31 now. So I was 26 at diagnosis. So you're on because I was like, does anybody have a cool job? And you, you, were, <laughs> you were like, I do. So um, I want to find out about that. But first, I want to understand about being diagnosed right as a new job starts. So did that make it more difficult to figure out because your life was yeah. already kind of twisted up, I imagine? For sure. Uh, so I was a 911 dispatcher before I was a crime scene investigator, and I started getting sick during that job. I worked 12-hour shifts, and I was drinking about a gallon of water or more per 12-hour shift. And of course, having to pee every five seconds. So I knew something was wrong, and I had gone to a doctor in, in about March of 2018 for some blood work. Because I thought it was my thyroid due to some family history with the thyroid. Mm -hmm. And that doctor kind of blew me off. And he didn't run all the tests. He didn't run a, an A1C test. He really just told me it was probably sleep apnea that I was so tired and sent me on my way. So I continued to get a lot sicker. I lost a lot of weight. 
And when I started my new job, I was having trouble walking down the halls without being out of breath. I was holding the walls to walk. And they were like, we're too concerned to call you out to crime scene. So we're not going to do that until you figure out what's going on. So it kind of hindered my job in the very beginning, mostly because the doctors weren't listening to me. Haley, there's no way that people weren't in a room with the door closed going, hey, who hired this one? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. She's holding the walls. I mean, (laughs) okay, so because of family history, you were thinking thyroid. Correct. Yes. Every female in my mom's side of the family has a thyroid issue. Okay. And the doctor, I love this, by the way, whatever is trendy is what they, (laughs) is what they go with. You have sleep apnea. Do do you, has anyone else been through, Haley, I'm talking to everybody now, but uh, whose dentist has suddenly become like a shaman? Because... I used to go to the dentist. They were like, here, let me fix your teeth. And now they say things like, oh, you're, uh, this looks swollen. And are you doing this enough? I'm like, are you, what are you branching out or something? I was like, just, you know, teeth, please. But my kids, what is it? Your, what do people have taken out of their throat? Oh my God, Haley, your tonsils. Their tonsils. Yes. Every time Arden goes to the, to the dentist, do you have, do you have trouble breathing? And and, and she's like, no, why? (laughs) So your tonsils are very big. And she goes, yeah, I, I can breathe fine. <laughs> and it's just, it just, it's constantly like that. So I, I love that the doctor was like, you know what's trendy right now? Sleep apnea. Because, because you know, Haley, at 27, you probably had sleep apnea. <laughs> right. With no family history of it yeah. and no other symptoms. Yeah, and, and by the way, I see a photo of you and your little, I, you know, your thing here, you, you seem like you're a, like a healthy weight and you know what I mean? Like it, there's just nothing about you that says probably can't breathe when she lays down, but okay. Anyway, you're stumbling around at work, having just gotten this job. How do you get that? How do you go from being a dispatcher to that? Like what's the leap there? Yeah. So, you know, when I was in college, I knew I wanted to work in criminal justice, got a bachelor's in sociology because my college didn't have a major in criminal justice. Mm -hmm. And I interned for a police department and a private security firm during my four years in my undergrad. And I just needed a foot in the door to kind of figure out where I wanted to go in my career. And thankfully, the agency I'd interned for, they were hiring dispatchers. So I was like, you know what, my mom's done it. So I'm going to ask her if she thinks I can do it. She said yes. And so I went for it. Um, I did that for four years, while getting a master's online. And my initial goal had been the behavioral science unit of the FBI, which is why I went and got that master's degree. And in the process of being a dispatcher, I learned, you know, that you, you don't get to know the end. You have to hang up the phone and pick up the next call and you never get to hear what happened and you don't get to be involved as much at least in any kind of investigative work. Mm -hmm. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to get out in the field. I wanted to help people on the investigation side. So I just started applying to all the crime scene jobs I could apply to. And without any experience in that field, it was very difficult to get one. And so, you know, I was very blessed to get the job that I do have. And I have attempted the FBI. I do think that the diabetes diagnosis does hinder that, though, because they told me I needed more education and experience, but I I don't want a PhD. I'm going to say something out loud here. (laughs) I know that people from the Secret Service listen. So would you want to work there? (laughs) 
I have actually applied to them as well. Um, and that one did not work out either, but I just figured maybe the federal was not my way to go since it wasn't working out for me. Do you think it really has something to do with the diabetes? I don't think that the secret service did. I know that the FBI has been sued for something like that before. Okay. I mean, it just seemed very broad of a, you just need more education and experience. And I'm like, okay, maybe experience, you know, I'm a supervisor now, so I'm starting to get some new experience, mm-hmm. but education wise, you don't even need a master's to be federal. You just need a bachelor's. How far did you get through that secret service? Like, isn't that initial, it's like months and months of background checks and, and stuff like that. Did you go through that? Yeah, so I got to just before like the really extensive background checks. So I did the polygraph, I did the initial interviews and stuff. And, you know, a three hour polygraph is not easy for somebody who's never done one. So I was the most nervous I've ever been in my entire life, even though I've literally done nothing to fail one. (laughs) So three, three continuous hours? Yeah, I mean, there's short breaks right. in between, but I was there for three hours. Wow. Yeah. How long ago did you do that? Um, that? Yeah, so the polygraph itself was three hours, and the process itself took maybe three months before I got the email saying no. Was I'm, and, I'm, I'm sorry. I was just trying to figure out if that was like recently in the last year or so. Or? Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, so that was, I believe it was the end of last year. Okay. Because cool. it, it was before I got promoted to supervisor. Yeah. So it, it was before February, at least. Well, you sound very motivated to, like, you know what I mean? Like, there's, you already had to go through so much just to make the first leap. Like you said, it was difficult to get the job without any experience. I bet, I mean, are you happy where you are now? Or do you think you'll keep pushing to try to, to broaden? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm super happy right now. Like I said, I was promoted in February and it's, it's a difficult job to kind of move around in sometimes because people who get into the crime scene field don't leave typically. So you have to wait for somebody to either leave or retire, you know, and if they've only been there a few years then it might be 15 years before you can become a supervisor without leaving that agency. But again, it's hard at other agencies too, but it's, it's definitely rewarding work. And the agency where I work at isn't like one of those big, big cities where there's, a homicide every night. Mm-hmm. So I, the one thing that it does lack is kind of, you know, I need to have that training so that when it does happen, I'm prepared for those things. Yeah. But I kind of taken a step back, you know, with these no's from the federal agencies and trying to reevaluate what I, what I do want for the future. Mm-hmm. Well, that's cool. I mean, I thought it would be easier to move up because I figured from what I've seen on television, a serial killer <laughs> shows up like halfway through the season and kills everybody in the department. So it should be super easy for you to move up, I thought. <laughs> Don't they kidnap the girl yeah, who's think- smart and has the glasses? And then like a lot of stuff has to happen. You know what I mean? Right. And I think at a bigger agency, maybe it is, you know, because there's different yeah. like groups. You're not just a crime scene tech, you are specialized in bloodstain or in shooting reconstruction, whereas I have to have a broad knowledge of everything. Right. At some point, I'll get to your diabetes. But there was, um, there was like, you know, for, I don't know how long ago it was, there's a lot made that, you know, technology had moved forward. And you could tell like, there was all this like, uh, you could tell what's happening by the way blood splatters and everything. And now more recently, like I'm hearing that that is like flawed science. Like how do you keep up with what's current and 
do do they ever go backwards? Like, I mean, could you use a technology to, I don't know, find out somebody did something and then five years later learn the technology is no good? Do they go back and look at that case again? Or how does all that work? Yeah, so we we have training at least once a year at this like big conference where they go over all the new laws in the state and all that so that we are aware of what is changing in at least in our state. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, the different disciplines like blood stain and stuff, you would have to go to that specific training and learn from the people who are experts in that field. And, you know, it is changing and it changes quickly. You look at gunshot residue. And even polygraphs that used to be a big thing on the stand. And nowadays, they're not accepted in courtrooms at all Hmm. because of how flawed that they can be. Gunshot residue, if you're in the room, it's on you, whether you were involved in it or not. So sometimes that can really be a hindrance on the case, unless you're trying to prove that the person said they weren't in the room and you're trying to prove that they were, basically. As you're going back to look at cases, that's more of like a detective type thing versus crime scene. Mm -hmm. But I would assume that they do. I mean, you, you definitely don't want to put innocent people away. Yeah. So you're telling me if I'm in a room and someone shoots a, a, a nine millimeter in here and you're in the room across the hall and someone shoots a 38 in there, can you tell that we were in different rooms? So it would definitely depend on like how close certain guns the size of the gun will determine like how far that gunshot residue is going to go. Mm-hmm. So you could be standing far enough away that it wouldn't touch you, but because it floats in the air, kind of like you see dust in the air, yeah. it can attach to you even when you'd never touch that firearm. But can you tell the nine millimeter from the 38? I actually don't know if you could. I think that that would definitely depend if I don't know a lot about guns. Mm-hmm. We have like firearms experts at my police department, but it would depend a lot on the different, is, is there different gunshot powder in those bullets in the ammo? Do they right. use different ones or do they use the same? Because if they use different ones, you could potentially tell that. That's interesting. Okay, so I get, let me ask you about the diabetes first. How, how were you, <laughs> I have a lot of questions about your job. So how were you, I mean, you you were stumbling around at work and did someone say, hey, please don't use heroin at the police department? Or like, like who, who grabbed you and was like, Haley, you need help? Did you figure it out on your own? Or Yeah, well, I was continually going to doctors. So March was that first doctor. He They called, left a voicemail, said, you're fine. Everything's fine, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay, well, I guess I would, I've just been tired. And I wasn't really experiencing all the symptoms at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, by June is when I started to drop a lot of weight. And so I went to actually the gynecologist and I stepped on the scale and I was 20 pounds less than I had been two weeks prior. And they're like, Oh no, no, no. Like that's a healthy weight for your age. And I was like, yeah, but I'm not trying to lose weight. And that's a lot. So I'm a little concerned. Thankfully it was the same type of regional clinic. So he was able to see the blood work that the doctor had previously done and saw that he didn't do everything. He didn't do a glucose panel. He didn't even do all the thyroid tests. So it was actually a doctor who's not even specialized to figure it out who ran my glucose panel and found my A1C was too high. But then I had problems getting in to see an endocrinologist. They referred me to one that didn't take my insurance. And by the time I got one that took my insurance, it was like a two, three month wait to get into that doctor. Oh my God. So yeah. I'm, and at this point I'm 50 pounds less. I, my potassium is dangerously low. Um, and I end up getting hospitalized to get the potassium 
injected back into me and get my insulin or my blood sugar down because I wasn't on insulin. I was just on metformin at that point. So it, Hel- it Hel- got Hel- drastically Hel- a second. worse. I, I sort of know what you look like. 50, pa- yeah. 50 pounds? I looked like a skeleton. Oh my God. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, I looked super sick. I, I think it was 119 pounds, maybe a little less when I got my official diagnosis. Did you think you were dying? I did. I mean, especially because I couldn't get a doctor to help me. Like all these doctors were like, okay, yeah, something's wrong, but we can't tell you exactly what it is. It might be diabetes. So here's some metformin, which made me nauseous and I couldn't eat at all. I would order a kid's meal at a restaurant and eat half of it. And, and you're also in a fog, right? Like mentally. Right. So you're not even able to kind of advocate for yourself the way you would want to. And you, and the weird thing about being in a fog is you don't know that. Like that's, that's the crazy part. Like you just like, Oh, I went to the doctor. They said this and you kind of go along with it because you're at, you're at half speed and you're obviously, you're not even, your blood's not oxygenating even like you're, you're lightheaded walking around and like, yeah, you're, you're really in trouble. So is it just dumb luck that you made it to a doctor in time? My daughter Arden has been wearing an Omnipod since she was four years old, and she is now 19. That is every day wearing an Omnipod for the last 15 years. I think what we love most about Omnipod is that it doesn't have any tubing. But, uh, I don't know. Is that the thing you love most about it? You don't have to take it off to swim or bathe. You can leave it on for activity and exercise. It's small. I don't, I mean, it's so easy to put on, right? To fill it and to put it on. It's just, it takes us no time at all. Um, Yeah, I guess it's hard to figure out what my favorite thing about Omnipod is. I guess I'll just say that my daughter loves it. It's easy and it's worked for her for so many years. It's just such a friend in all of this. Omnipod.com forward slash juice box. You can check your coverage there for your insurance uh, or Take a test drive, right? Would you like a free trial of the Omnipod? You can do that there as well. And you can just get started. Omnipod.com forward slash juice box. Now you have a decision to make. Do you want the Omnipod Dash, which is an insulin pump where you make all the decisions? Or do you want the Omnipod 5? Now the Omnipod 5 is the first and only tubeless automated insulin delivery system to integrate with the Dexcom G6. And it's available for people with type 1 diabetes ages 2 years and older. It features smart adjust technology, and it's going to help you to protect against highs and lows both day and night. That's an algorithm-based system, making decisions about insulin, giving it and taking it away. It's pretty damn cool. Omnipod.com forward slash juice box. Links in the show notes. Links at juiceboxpodcast.com. When you use those links, you're supporting the production of the podcast and helping to keep it free and plentiful. If you have type 2 or pre-diabetes, the Type 2 Diabetes Pro Tip Series from the Juice Box Podcast is exactly what you're looking for. Do you have a friend or a family member who is struggling to understand their Type 2 and how to manage it? This series is for them. Seven episodes to get you on track and up to speed. Episode 860, Series Intro. 864, Guilt and Shame. Episode 869, Medical Team. 874, Fueling Plan. Episode 880, Diabetes Technology. Episode 885, GLP-1s, Metformin, and Insulin. 
And in episode 889, we talk about movement. This episode is with me and Jenny Smith. Of course, you know Jenny is a certified diabetes care and education specialist. She's a registered and licensed dietitian, and Jenny has had type 1 diabetes for over 30 years. Too many people don't understand their type 2 diabetes, and this series aims to fix that. Share it with a friend, or get started today. So, you know, you saying that you can't advocate for yourself is a great thing that leads into basically the friends around me and my coworkers, or at least my previous coworkers, because I was brand new at my my current job, but my previous coworkers, they were so concerned. They called, um, it was actually a cardiologist, but he was a reserve police officer. So he worked with the agency a lot. And because I had such an accelerated heart rate and trouble breathing when walking and my potassium being low, he was able to see me for those reasons. Mm -hmm. And he got me into an endocrinologist the very next week. Like he called and made sure that I got an appointment immediately. Wow. And did you ever go to the ER? I did go to the ER. So I saw him. I did the crazy blood work panel that tests everything. And then I saw the endocrinologist the next week, but the blood work wasn't in yet. So she drew a little bit of her own blood. And then I went four hours away for a work training, a photography training. <laughs> While I was away at that training, this doctor who I currently see because she's amazing, called me four times at one in the morning unblocked her personal phone number because I wouldn't answer the blocked number because I don't ever answer blocked numbers just to tell me my potassium was so low that I needed to go get it rechecked because I was at risk for a heart attack. So me being me and having class the next day for a brand new job that paid $800 for me to go to this class, I didn't go to the ER right away. Mm -hmm. I went to class later in the week. I was noticing, because I was testing my blood sugar at this point, but I was only on metformin, but I was noticing that I was eating salads for lunch and jumping up into the four or 500s, whereas usually I was resting in the 300s, hmm. waiting for that blood work to come in. Yeah. So I ended up going to the ER that week to, for the potassium. But while I was there, they also got my blood sugar down into the 100s. And then I was diagnosed the very next week after that class. What, what did it feel like to get your blood sugar down? Oh my gosh, it was amazing. And you know, I think that the potassium had the biggest effect on me because sure. once that, it was four bags of potassium, four hours, one bag an hour, because it burns without the saline going in as well. So it takes an hour to finish one bag. Between that and the insulin, I felt like a brand new person. Mm. As soon as it was done, I was like, this is exactly what was wrong with me because I feel like myself again. Wow, that's amazing. And for people listening, why are you not hiring Haley when she applies for a job? You listen to what she, she's like, I'm still going to work. Like her heart was shutting <laughs> off and she's like, listen, they paid $800 for me to go to this conference. I'm going to go to the conference. Like you're a hard worker. Seriously. <laughs> you I was so nervous. And of course my boss was like, there's other photography classes. We don't care. Like <laughs> you just need to take care of yourself. No, at this point they were planning on firing you already. They're like, something's really wrong with this girl. <laughs> like we, we've made a mistake. Let's just get her through the probation period. We can boot her out of here. They were probably, people were probably just relieved. I would imagine once it was all over that you had an answer. Yeah. Just I mean, hundred percent. When I started the application process for my job, it took four months to get hired. So when mm. I started the application process, I wasn't experiencing symptoms yet. Yeah. So it was a shock to everyone. And, you know, I got the the typical, I don't know if 
your listeners or anybody else has gotten this, but just the, oh, I'm so glad it wasn't worse because people were thinking, oh, well, maybe it's cancer. And I literally would turn to them and go, it, well, it is worse though, because it's for life. And it's a very hard diagnosis. Listen, those there's two different thoughts there because you're right. But what they were thinking was there's no, they all thought you were dead. Right. Like, they that, thought I was going to die. Yeah. And they were so worried. That was the, their initial reaction. Yeah. Yeah. The people around you saw the situation you were in and like, oh, that girl's not going to make it. And right. Yeah. And they're, and they're busy going like, oh, I'm so glad it's not something that makes your head fall off. And you're like, yeah, but uh, guess what I have but to do? Yeah, it's a lot going on over here now. I have tubes and pumps and glucose monitors and test strips and uh, yeah, and uh, I, I take that point. So, I mean, your friends came through for you, obviously, when the medical community kind of couldn't. You were lucky that you worked where you worked, so people knew doctors and 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 that kind of stuff is is just really lucky. No, um, with all the thyroid on your mom's side, no type one. So there's no type one on her side. And unfortunately, because of my biological father's side not being involved in my life, I have a great stepdad, been my dad since I was two. We didn't know that medical side and diabetes runs on the biological father's side. Oh, I learned that afterwards. Yeah. Oh, that would have been nice to know sooner. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's crazy. So so do, do you, by the way, is your thyroid okay? I have Hashimoto's, mm-hmm. so uh, but my thyroid it it never falls out of range, so they don't necessarily like prescribe me medication for it. I am testing out a low dosage though because I do still have some symptoms even though I'm still within range. Yeah. And my mom has Graves, which is the opposite, yep. pretty much. She said that she has to run a little higher to feel normal, and that that could be hereditary to run a little bit higher than what they want you to run. There's an excellent thyroid series inside the podcast if you ever want to check it out. I think, um, yeah, from my perspective, if you have symptoms, you should be using like Synthroid or something, to, you know, one of those medications. You, should, you shouldn't, you should I guess what I'm saying is you shouldn't take medication based on the number. You should take it based on how you feel. Yeah, and I think that that's why this doctor gave me the month of, or two, I'm sorry, it's two months of to test it out and see because I was going to a previous doctor, the first doctor who diagnosed me, I went to her until my insurance dropped that location and I couldn't go there anymore. Mm-hmm. And I went to this other doctor who was just very data-driven. If the numbers didn't show it, they didn't do it. Yeah. They are the ones that diagnosed me with the Hashimoto's, but you know they didn't really do anything about it. They just said, okay, well, you have it. Here you go. So as soon as my insurance switched, I immediately jumped back ship good. to the good doctor. Yeah, you could see... Um you could see symptoms over a TSH of like 2.1 or so. And right. it would be reasonable to medicate them. Anyway, there's great episodes. I'll, I'll share them with you <laughs> when we're done so you can Sounds find great. them. Okay, so so when you go from the 911 job, which I want to ask you about just a little bit, is that hard? is that hard on you, like on your soul? Is that a tough job? I would say <clears throat> that anything in this field, yes. Uh, mental health is a big thing. And I'm thankful that the agency that I work for, they believe in that and they actually pay for a therapist's office that we can go to that doesn't tell them who's going to see them. They just pay the bill mm-hmm. and then we can go whenever we need for whatever we want. But it's it's hard because you're listening to people, you know, 911 wise, you're listening to people in the worst moments. They need help. And, you know, it could be something really serious or 
maybe it doesn't seem as serious to you, but it is to them. It's the worst day of their life. Yeah. And like I said before, you're hanging up the phone afterwards and you're just picking up the next one. For an example, my mom was a 911 dispatcher for 10 years and she was on the phone during the Fort Hood active shooter. And that still makes it hard for her to be in crowds to this day. Wow. Yeah, I can't imagine. And then, like you said, that it's just over and right. it's still happening and you know, it's still happening, but you're on to the next one. And the next one's like, I locked myself out of my house. You're like, Oh my God, well, you have no idea what's happening three blocks away. Um, right. Yeah. <laughs> Is it harder to listen to somebody in the aftermath of something or is it, is it more difficult to talk to somebody while something's happening to them? Like as far as getting, you know what I mean? Like getting their information, how hard it is for you to hear, like that kind of stuff. Yeah, definitely during, you know, sometimes your emotions are running higher, you're yelling, you're crying, you're kind of incoherent sometimes. And, you know, that certain agencies and certain programs require certain questions to be asked. And so, I know one of the programs we were using required me to ask the address twice. And that person, after the first time they give it to you, they might not be listening anymore because they just need help. And they're like, you have my address, send someone. Or, you know, they don't actually want to talk to you. Or maybe they can't talk to you. Maybe there's somebody in the room with them that can't know that they're on 911. So definitely during the situation is always harder. Yeah. Interesting that you were diagnosed with type 1 after you left that job. So how many recollections do you have of 911 calls from people with type 1? You know, I don't know if I ever necessarily took 911 calls that you kind of wouldn't know, that, right? Right. Yeah. They never said that they had it. But now that I'm working in crime scenes, I will go to, you know, death scenes and I'll see packages of syringes and insulin and stuff like that and I'm like, "Whoa." I didn't realize, you know, that this was so big before I had diabetes. I didn't know the difference between type one, type two. I didn't know there was like seven different kinds of it, what any of it meant until the week after I was diagnosed and I was trying to learn it all in a hurry. Right. Well, okay. So uh, I want to understand your job. You, I assume, go to an office and um, what happens? Like a, a crime's committed or something happens, someone comes and gets you and takes you to a scene or says, this is where you have to go. Like walk me through the whole process. Yeah. So I work four days a week, 10 hour shifts. I work from 6am to 4pm and I I kind of choose those hours. We just have to work 40 in a week. Mm -hmm. They're not big on whether that's eight hour or 10 hour shifts, but the majority of my job, unlike the TV is a desk job with lots of spreadsheets on Excel. I'm in charge of the evidence room as well. And taking that evidence to and from crime labs and stuff like that. So that takes up the majority of my day. If a crime scene does occur and they need us, then they will call our, we have work phones. We're on call. There's only two of us. So I'm on call every other day. They'll call us. We have work vehicles that we can take home. And so we'll take that vehicle. We have an hour to respond to the scene. And once we get to the scene, it is our job to document that scene in different ways. So we take photos, we take videos, we will draw and sketch the scene, collect evidence, take notes, all kinds of things that when we go to court, we can recreate that scene if needed. Mm -hmm. And then also, of course, collect the evidence that could solve the crime. So the way you collect the data, the visuals especially, is about 
putting you in a situation where you can recollect it later based on what you saw. Like it, they're almost notes for yourself so that you can say, when I got there, this was happening. These were at this angle, like that kind of stuff. It's, it's for you. So that, that, that yeah. your expertise can then be drawn upon in a, in a hearing or some sort. Yeah. And even, I mean, with this, with a hand-drawn sketch, you can take those measurements with PVC pipe and white butcher paper and create a 3d model of that crime scene and walk a jury through it. And so it's a big, those are big things for courtrooms, which don't happen for years after it. And so you're trying to remember what you did two, three, four years ago. Um, I, I still haven't gone to court for my first every fatality accident, which was in 2018. But you will eventually. Um, and, and I may, unless yeah. they plea out, you know, I right. might go to court for that. I think it's scheduled for March of next year right now. So if they call, if they subpoena me to that courtroom, I need to remember what I did. And so I always, I have my photos and doc, like notes and sketches and all that it's saved in three different places yeah. at my work computer. And, and so it's, 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 so it's about collecting the data to have it, but it's also the way you collect it is about how it kind of jogs your memory when you look back at it again. So, so that's why there's a, a process like that. That's what I'm imagining. Like there's, a, yeah, yeah. It, you know, it has to be like an actual representation of the scene, you know, yeah. because if you take your photo in a way that distorts it, then you can be seen as trying to make the crime scene into what you wanted it to be pulling in that bias. Like, Oh, well they said it's a suicide. So it's definitely a suicide making the evidence show that it is. Mm -hmm. So you can't do that, you know, and that's why you kind of have to follow a step. So you take photos first because you can't touch anything until those photos are done. You can't touch anything until your sketch is done. Once those are done, then you can start collecting evidence. So there, there's definitely a process to make sure that it gets done correctly. Wow. How, um, what was my question? I just had a question. Oh, um, <laughs> ev the evidence handling. So I'm, I'm assuming then a lot of it's about packaging it correctly, keeping it clean, safe, away from being touched by other stuff. And then do you log it all and then take it to a handling room? And then during the day, also, it's about moving it around in a way that protects it and it, it, that's a lot of your job right like a lot of it is is making sure that nothing is touched or messed with right yeah so we go to like a bunch of classes on different packaging certain pieces of evidence can't be packaged in plastic versus paper we have boxes specifically for firearms and there's a lot of rules and policies on how what can be packaged which way and so you know those are something that me and my partner have to be experts in because we have to also correct every officer putting in evidence for the scenes that we do not go to if they're doing it right or wrong. You know, it is our job to take those from the officer and put those in the evidence room, but they have to be put in there correctly. And then we're the only ones with the keys to get to that evidence, mm -hmm. to get in those evidence rooms. And so we are responsible. If one of those items goes missing, like it is on us, we could get fired. We could get charged with a crime. Yeah. Uh, our chief could get fired, and there's a lot of liability that comes with an evidence room. Wow. Do you do car accidents as well? I do. Um, we stopped doing them for a little bit because we have an accident reconstruction team, and they're trained in forensic photography and all that as well. And since there's only two of us and there's like six of them or so, they were handling the photos without us. Um, but I don't know if anybody else has noticed how short-staffed everyone is lately, but <laughs> we, we also... Our short staff, so we have taken on doing accidents again. I, I there's a sandwich place in the town where I live, and they've hired a man who is I'm just gonna guess his age, 175 years old, and <laughs> and he 
he makes sandwiches at a speed that is not uh, conducive to eating. And I, and I, I did, I know one of the guys there and I was like, what's up? And he goes, we can't get anybody to work. And yeah. I was like, oh, still, <laughs> I was like, you people got to go back to work. <laughs> it's over now. Like, go, please go make my sandwich. <laughs> but that, that's interesting. So what about fires? Do you do fires in arson or is that a different branch of, of what you do? So most of the time, arsons are really handled by the fire marshals because they have the fire and the peace officer license. They're, they're trained in both police and fire. But if the arson causes a homicide or, you know, they tried to burn up the evidence because they, they killed somebody, right. then we would definitely go to that scene and assist with the collection of evidence and all of that. It sounds like a interesting job. Do you find it to be interesting or does it even does everything get repetitive after a while? Yeah, I mean, I definitely find it interesting. Growing up, I was always the one watching the serial killer documentaries. Uh, in college, I was doing projects on serial killers and grossing my teachers out. Like, it's it's always something that's fascinated me. I would watch forensic files till I fell asleep at night, which is pretty much the only accurate TV show when it comes to crime scenes. So it was always something that I've been interested in, in which is why I took that jump from you know dispatching to this job but now that I do it obviously it's interesting but it's also super stressful and a lot of work I don't watch forensic files and all that anymore I've never even seen the new Jeffrey Dahmer thing on Netflix is that breaking your heart that you didn't see it (laughs) you know I'm just not even interested to watch it because I do this all day almost every single day especially now that I'm a supervisor I feel like I'm constantly checking my emails and having that work phone attached to my hip Mm -hmm. Well, how does your diabetes impact your work then? So um, how do you manage? Do you have a pump or MDI or what do you do? Yeah. So I recently got the pump and CGM back in January of 2021. I could not afford it at first because my insurance does not cover medical devices until you meet your deductible. Hmm. And it was going to cost me 3000 I think 3300 total for the pump up front. But I was experiencing the dawn phenomenon. So I was going to sleep. On a normal blood sugar in the 90s, maybe, and waking up 250, 280 every morning. And so I was like, I need this pump. I need something to where I don't have to wake up every few hours to give myself insulin. And so I actually did a fundraiser. And my police department helped with that as well. They donated $500 to it. And I raised $5,000 within two weeks. And so I was able to get the pump, get the Dexcom. And put some money away for the rest of the year when it came to insulin. And then also help somebody else out as well. Wow. And it's been life-changing. I mean, before the Dexcom and pump and before listening actually to your CGM episode, my A1C was about a 9.1. On three months of the pump, I was down to 6.8. Well, that's terrific. Good it was you. magic, but like literally life-changing. So, you know, at work, obviously, before that, I had injections and I had to check my blood sugar by pricking my finger. And sometimes you're on a crime scene for like seven hours. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have food or snacks, you know, that can be really difficult. And I have great coworkers who I can text and I have before on a seven hour crime scene in June in the middle of Texas outside 102 degrees and said, Hey, can you please bring me some food? Because my blood sugar is going to go low and I have nothing and they will drop what they're doing and do that for me. I've taught them, you know, 
what the glucagon is and that I have it in my drawers and I have it, you know, things in my crime scene van that can help me on a scene. So it's definitely being prepared for the worst before it happens. Yeah. You don't want a scene on top of a scene. <laughs> right. Know? Exactly. They're not going to be very happy with me. If that the, happens. Is the crime scene investigator passed out? Yes. yes, right. yes, yes. Her, yeah. blood, her blood sugar got low. Well, that's, that's really, I mean, going back to the, you know, the fundraiser, that's, I mean, that's how much it meant to you. You're like, I can't pay for this. I know I need it. I'm going to try to see if I can't find another way. You, you should like do a thing where you prove like, boyfriends are cheating or something like that you could probably charge for that don't you think <laughs> i probably could yeah yeah I'm, i i assume there's some market for that uh where you you just kind of come into the house you look around you tell them what to look for do you find yourself being does the job make you more suspicious 100 percent. i feel like i do not trust anything you know i get out of my car and i look around i have certain security measures in my apartment. Like I have a bar that goes under my door so you can't kick it in. I don't like answer phone calls or answer the door to people I don't know because I do see those terrible things happen. Yeah. Do you think it's a reasonable concern or do you think it's just, it's just kind of, I don't know, multiplied because you've seen it more than once. Yeah. I think some of it is reasonable. I think some of it also comes from being a female and, you know, when you're female who lives alone, I live in a city that isn't always, I don't live in the city I work, but the city I live in, not always the nicest city. Mm-hmm. And so some of that is like reasonable and some of it is just from the job. Do you carry a gun? You live in Texas. You must carry a gun, right? <laughs> I have one and I actually don't carry it. I, I kind of just use it as home security, but I did have to call the cops uh, last Friday because this guy was knocking on my door and... He kept touching the doorknob trying to see if it was unlocked. Mm -hmm. So I started carrying it while I take my dog out to go to the bathroom. Wow. Just just because I don't know where that guy came from or who he is, but I haven't seen him again, thankfully. Oh, that's that's that did that make your blood sugar go up, by the way? It did. It did. I was so stressed out. Oh, that would stress me out too. I I I I mean I know you're saying, you know, I'm alone and I'm a woman, but I'm if I I feel the same way, I'd be like, why are we trying to open the door? Although, um and and so oh that's crazy. How how yeah. um, how long have you lived alone? Since last October. Okay. So you've you've yeah. done both ways. You've been by yourself, you've been in school, you've lived with a person, you've been by yourself again. You've kind of gone back and forth. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So I was married, recently divorced, and when I was married is when I got on the pump and when I was diagnosed. And so I had two incomes. And so that has been an adjustment and also, you know, not having someone there in case I do drop really low. So, you know, on the Dexcom app, I have five people watching my numbers and some of those people work nights so that they can look at my numbers while I'm sleeping. That's excellent. Oh, that's really great. I like the way you've got that all covered. I don't want to know your personal business, but now I'm dying to know (laughs) if you figured something out about your husband because of your job, you were like, wait a minute, I'm seeing what's happening here. Uh, But we'll skip over that because it's not part of what we're talking about. The short answer is yes. Oh (laughs) oh my God. So, so there's, Something about being deductive and paying attention to things that led you to figure out something in your personal life. Yeah. I mean, you know, my brain works in different ways. You know, when I see things, I want to investigate it further. 
So, you know, I might not be suspicious at first, but if I see something that makes me suspicious, I'm going to investigate it. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, <laughs> that'll scare guys off. <laughs> or the wrong, <laughs> right. well, you know, it'll scare the wrong guys off. Or the right, yeah, it'll scare the wrong exactly. guys off. So good. Yeah, you, good should, you should tell that story on a date. <laughs> like, <laughs> right? And yeah. see if they jump up and run or yeah. not. Don't even bother. You second <laughs> phone, I'm going to know. <laughs> <laughs> Why are boys terrible, Haley? You know, there's crazy girls out there too. So I know they are. Dating but... in general is it's crazy. I'll tell you that. What's that like with diabetes now? Have you dove back in? Have you tried to go out with somebody? Yeah. So I recently started dating, probably literally last month or the month before, and I was really nervous about that. I was nervous to bring it up, to pull the pump out. You know, I try to wear my CGM in places where you can see it. Just because, you know, I've been out at grocery stores and had kids come up and show me theirs. And so I'm like, you know, it's a, it's a great thing. It, it's a community yeah. trying to find people out. Diabetics in the wild, right? So I try to make it known, but I was worried about that on a date. You know, do I say it right away? And so far, it's been just like, a, oh, that's cool. Like, oh, what's that like? You know, that must be hard. And I'm like, wow, it's kind of the opposite of what I expected it to be. Hmm. But it's still something that I'm, like, curious to see how it goes. Yeah. Well, I mean, we saw what the FBI said when you told them. So that wouldn't make me nervous. <laughs> they were like, right? oh, no, you need more experience. You, you got to go. Yeah, you, you got to get out of here. And you're disqualified. You can't be in the military if you're type one. So, I mean, there's a lot of jobs that you get disqualified from sure. for it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's one of those things. Like, it's it sucks. Like, yeah, I, I understand. I, I think I understand everybody's perspective. You know what I mean? Like right. you, you need to work right. and it's not your fault. You have type one. And, and at the same time, if we were, I don't know, flying jets, uh, I wouldn't want your blood sugar getting low. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a lot there to consider. Tough to bring up to people you're dating. Cause you're not sure what they're going to say. People have been generally accepting. I always tell people like, I've, I've had a lot of like interviews where people talk about finding like, you know, mates and the right people and, it, it just, it doesn't seem to be an issue when you find the right person. And yeah. it sucks because, I mean, I get it. You know what I mean? Like, I get why it would suck. And it's something I worry about for my daughter, too. You know? I mean, I'm definitely going to keep somebody up in the middle of the night. Whether it's pump alarms or my work phone's going off to go to a crime scene. <laughs> so you might not get any sleep. Well, oh, Arden's been home from school for like a week. Like, today. <laughs> today and I told her last night, I was like, I... Abs- I've slept so terribly the last three nights because, you know, that adjustment, like she left her schedule and she's coming into a different schedule and it throws your blood sugar off and you're in the middle of kind of like getting it back together again. And I was like, God, I've been up like two nights in a row because your blood sugar has gotten high or low. And But when she was at school, she was in such a pattern like that it worked great. And it, it is, I mean, it, it, that, it does impact the people who are with you. So... I mean, I think there's no doubt about it. Like, I wouldn't be, you know, I wouldn't be upset if my daughter heard me say this, but my life's not what it would have been if she didn't have diabetes, just like hers is, you know? Uh, I mean, in different ways, obviously, but still there's impacts everywhere. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. So you said you use a pump, but you didn't say which one. Are you on an algorithm or are you using the pump on your own? Yeah, I'm using the Tandem T-Slim, so I'll have the Control IQ Nice with the... Dexcom G6. It just happened to be a little bit cheaper than the Omnipod for me. And I was on the Medtronic CGM and I just wasn't very happy. 
with it. And so I didn't want to get that pump specifically. Mm-hmm. And the, the tandem just worked out well. I, like I said, I've been on it for a little, what is that, a year and a half now? Yeah. Almost two years. You like the control IQ? I do like it. I, I, I'm a little bad when it comes to putting in the carbs before I eat them. So I don't always let the pump do the job that it's supposed to do. And my, you know, my endocrinologist definitely tells me, Hey, I need you to put these carbs in so I can accurately read your numbers. I'm like, you're right. I'm so sorry. So what, what happens? So, you know, you're going to eat and then you don't like, so you're not pre-bolusing is what you're saying. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes. Like if I'm out at a restaurant with friends, I will sometimes just kind of almost forget like, oh, hey, by the way, you're diabetic. You need to do this mm-hmm. and and be a little bit lazy and not do it right away. And then when it starts going up, I'm like, oh, crap. And then you just throw in you some know, insulin or you do you tell it you ate or do you just throw in insulin at that point? Yeah, I still put in the, the carbs like, OK, I know I ate this many carbs, so let me go ahead and put those in. But I always check to see if it gave me anything because, you know, I was trying to do conversion, like the corrections and mm-hmm. stuff. So I don't want to overdo it because I've done that, too. Yeah. And that's not fun, obviously. So your blood so sh- I kind of- yeah, yeah. So your blood sugar, you don't tell it you're eating. I'm never going to get rid of this cold. Hold on a second. I'm, this is how I'm going to live for the rest of my life, I think. We're like seven weeks into being sick at my house. It's My wife's the worst. She's definitely, like, like I don't want to say this like this, but I mean, if anybody's interested in me, I'm probably going to be available soon. Like, she's, um, <laughs> she's, been, she's been really sick. And it just, it, it got everybody. But I, we, she got COVID, mm. thought it was gone. Uh, it rebounded. She gave it to me and my son. We struggled with it. I got bronchitis afterwards. So did my wife. I think my son had it not as bad. And then we finally got antibiotics for the bronchitis. It kicked it out of me, but not out of her. And now I think she's got a third different illness in like seven weeks. Oh my goodness. Like I told her today when I, I actually, I told her when I came in here, I said, if I come out and you're not at a doctor's office, I, I'm going to take you like a small child when I like, you have <laughs> to go back to the doctor. So in these scenarios, if you don't remember to bolus for your food, your blood sugar starts going up, control IQ sees that starts giving you insulin. And then later you're like, oh hell. And then you put in the carbs. Do you get low later after that happens? Or does that depend on how aggressive you are? Yeah, it kind of depends on me, I would say. And sometimes I am too aggressive, you know, with it. And I've noticed that and tried to cut back on doing that because, you know, I was having a lot of lows this this last three months in between my endocrinologist appointments. And I did start going to the gym more and I dropped really low in the gym a lot too. So she adjusted my numbers in general. But, you know, I, I know that I am part of the problem. Like I need to be putting in the carbs before I eat them, you know, I need to be make sure, make sure that I'm taking that time to do it correctly. Yeah. Just so she can read those numbers, you know, obviously so that I feel better, but so that she knows whether or not the, the numbers that she's changing in the pump are doing their job. So let me ask you a question based on your job, your profession and how well you were able to sniff out that terrible husband of yours and other things. <laughs> why is it you don't do it? You know, I, I haven't found the answer to that yet. Honestly, I feel like I am just so lazy sometimes with it. It's like, I know I need to do it. I know that I'll feel bad if I don't do it. But there's times where I just don't want to do it. And I think that, you know, it being like four years in, that I need to focus on doing it better now. You know, I don't want those complications in the future. And, you know, I need to get into good habits. So 
even though my A1C was, I think it was like a 6.6 this last time, mm-hmm. I'm not necessarily doing the things I need to do to, to have an A1C that's under seven. Yeah. Do you have any kids? I do not. No. Do just furry think, ones. Just furry. Do you, do you think you will ever <laughs> want to? I don't. Uh, it was something I didn't want before I was diabetic either. Mm-hmm. I have my niece and my nephew from my brother. And I'm like, that's good enough. I've got a dog and a cat. They're great. <laughs> Done. I tell you, it's very expensive. That's the yeah. That's the thing I know about it for sure. Um, but I was just asking to see if you were like if your focus was split on other people or something like that. But so you know, so you just kind of you're kind of qualifying it by saying like lazy. But it do you think it's do you think it's possible that it's just still very new and you don't want to have diabetes? I think that that could definitely be a big factor. When I was first diagnosed, you know, the way the doctor said it to me, which is very blunt in your face, like, hey, you're you're type one diabetic. It's going to be for the rest of your life. Let's start going into the details. And I was in a tunnel at that point. I don't know what she said to me after she said those words. And at the time, my ex-husband was in the room with me, thankfully, because he did catch the other things that she was saying. And I did go through, you know, a depression based on that diagnosis where I stopped taking care of myself in other ways. You know, I didn't shower as much and stuff like that. And I did end up seeing, you know, a therapist and taking the steps to take care of myself better. So I could say that's probably part of it. It's probably still part of that healing process of that diagnosis and the grief stages you go through. That would be my expectation based on listening to other people talk about their lives, that it's just, there is a small part of you that's just like, I want, I want this not to exist. And if maybe around meals, you can make it not exist for a few minutes. I don't know. Maybe that's satisfying somehow. I don't Obviously I'm just talking based on anecdotal information I hear from other people. I would tell you that there'd be a lot less for you to think about if you did those things, which I assume, you know, so right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like you could really free up a lot of the other parts of your life which would be nice. And and you'll move on. It, like, it sounds to me like you're in a journey situation and you're moving in the right direction. It just kind of takes time to go through it. Yeah. I think that, you know, 26 years of my life, I wasn't really sick ever. I didn't really have to go to the doctor or focus on what I was eating. Not necessarily that I was eating really bad things, but like I didn't have to count carbs or do anything like that. I actually had, you talked about bronchitis a little bit ago. I had bronchitis the January before my diagnosis. And I had never had bronchitis before. So, you know, I started out really sick that year. And of course, then it just, I got even sicker and got my diagnosis. And so, and that year was just rough in general. Yeah. How long did that stick with you, the illness? Uh, I had bronchitis. Well, I had a sinus infection. And again, I went to an urgent care and a doctor was like, oh, I don't think it's a sinus infection. And I got them every year. So I knew that it was a sinus infection, but she didn't give me antibiotics. She gave me a cough suppressant, and so it held that infection in there, and it turned into bronchitis. So I would say it was a good six weeks or more that I was sick with bronchitis. Oh, no kidding. That sucks. Yeah, and it's just, did it make the diabetes more difficult for you? So it came before the diagnosis, and honestly, I was interested to know, you know, they say that trauma to the body mentally and physically can help with, like, can almost cause, not cause it, obviously, but lead to your diagnosis. And so I didn't know if the bronchitis, you know, kind of helped speed up that process or not. Yeah. Well, I mean, any kind of, 
you know, stress on the body, right, that mm-hmm. brings your uh, immune system into play might have been one of the things that, that stressed things to the point where, you know, your your immune system's like, oh, I'm confused. I'll go get her beta cells now. <laughs> <laughs> sucks. It, the whole thing sucks. I'm wondering about, you're just, you're, you're an interesting age, right? Like you're in your early 30s, but you've been mm-hmm. more recently diagnosed. You've gone through a, a number of different life changes and you're just starting to get, it's interesting to talk to you right now because it's, you're not a kid, right? Like it's not happening to you. Like you're aware of how to live. You've been through some good things and some bad things in your life. It's not that you're, you seem calm about it. Do you consider that you're at peace that you have diabetes and that you're just working it out? Or do you think it's still something you're coming to grips with? I would say like 90% of the time I'm at peace with it. But I feel like I still have those moments where I kind of like, woe is me. I'm going to feel bad about myself. Certain things I'm still learning. And so I think as I learn those things and as I get better with using the pump and being able to understand it more, mm-hmm. that helps me be more at peace with it too. Just the knowledge on how to do better with it. Yeah. Well, that's good. I mean, it's. I think it's just a process. It takes a lot of time. Has community been valuable for you online at all? It's been huge for me. Um, I've actually met a few like diabetics through TikTok and met them in person. One being she's a, a kid and her mom takes care of her and then her mom's fiance is also type one. And she has me on her Dexcom too. So this mom has three people with alarms going off oh, <laughs> constantly. Nice. And her daughter has been such an inspiration to me because I'll post TikToks of me changing my Dexcom and changing my insulin pump cartridge just to kind of put the knowledge out there on how to do it. She tells me that like her daughter was too scared to do it before seeing my videos. Yeah. And now she does it on her own. That's cool. And so then I'm like, oh, well, I need to do better. <laughs> like, you know, I've got little little kids watching me. I need to be better about it. And then there's also like a group of ladies here that we meet once a month nice. and get lunch and we talk about things. And I listen to your podcasts. And like I said, the CGM one was big for me especially when I travel eight hours to see my brother driving podcasts are like the best way to make that trip. Things like that are huge. It is a really interesting medium. It, it lends itself to this incredibly well. Mm-hmm. Somebody asked me the other day about like, you know, could, would you make a video series about this? And I was like, I, I gotta be honest with you. I was like, I don't think it'll work. Uh, I think that there's something about being able to listen while you're doing other things and be able to have more long form conversations that get to stuff. And I, I don't know. I just, I think this works the best. Hey, do TikTok people bounce in real life or no? Not in real life. They don't bounce. <laughs> <up. laughs> like when you're all standing around, they don't just like, like pull on their shirts or like, you know what I mean? <laughs> right. Transition. No, no, not at all. <laughs> they don't suddenly show up in a completely different outfit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It might be a little weird. Uh amazing but it's very cool that you, to use any kind of like any kind of popular way of contacting people like you know i've heard people say i mean we've had people in our house to show them how to change their insulin pump and that's it's nice but it's one person at a time right like if you do yours right. on, on tiktok and 500 people see it then that's 500 people who go that doesn't look so tough and you know and then they can can feel better about it it's really it's wonderful is there anything I'm not asking you about your job that I should be? I want to make sure I'm not getting too far away from something important. 
You know, I don't think so. I think that, you know, we touched some of the big things, which was the mental health side of it and, you know, the, the physical, I'm lifting heavy things every now and then. And, and anybody knows with that has diabetes that workouts can really affect your blood sugars too. So just in general, I mean, it's a constant watch and, and that's a good thing about this technology, right? Having the CGMs and having this right on my phone that I can be in the middle of the evidence room in an area where I don't have the best cell phone service and still get a notification mm-hmm. if something's going on with my blood sugar. Yeah. No, it's the technology is huge. I was talking to Arden the other day, like we drove home together. So Arden goes to school pretty far away from our house and she's a fashion student and so Arden traveled with most of her clothing. <laughs> and, so, and, you know, she's got this break for her largest break of the year is right now. She's like not going to be at school for a couple of months. And she's like, I want to bring my stuff home. And I was like, well, how are you going to do that? <laughs> she's like, well, you're going to drive here and then drive me back. And I was like, uh, okay. <laughs> so long drive. So like I leave my house one o'clock on a Thursday and I think at like three in the morning, stopped at a hotel and slept like five hours, then got up and drove two more hours and picked Arden up, right? And so we get her stuff packed in the car. Middle of the afternoon, we leave. More of a straight shot home. We can share the driving a little bit so it doesn't take quite as long. But we get home at like four in the morning. So I, I think I drove something like, I don't know, 28 or 30 hours in like a 37 hour time frame. And anyway, there was a lot of time to talk on the way home. And I remember just saying to her, I don't know how we would have done this so well. Like, I don't know how you would have had the experience you had without all this technology. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like yeah, you still would have gone to college, but I don't know how you would have been 10 weeks in a place where the quality of the food's not great all of a sudden, like you go from the food you're eating to like lesser quality food makes it more difficult to bolus for has you using more insulin, has you eating more late at night. You're walking around more suddenly you're in a city by yourself. Like, I I mean, there was a time she got, she did this pre bolus for a meal and she got pretty low on the CGM And I told the story somewhere in the podcast, but I was able to, with apps that I have on my phone, see where she was physically. So I knew she was at a place where there was food and that she was eating. Like I saw saw that she was in the cafeteria. That was an app. I saw another app that saw when when the insulin went in and how much she put in. And I could see the projection of where it thought she was going to be in five minutes. And I don't know what I would have, like, otherwise she just would have been somewhere and her blood sugar would have been 50. And right. I wouldn't have known that. And she wouldn't have known it. She would have given herself insulin and gone to eat and it just all would have happened. It's just a, I mean, I know everybody can't afford it, right? It's not uh, like right. you, you talked about earlier, like everybody's insurance doesn't cover it, but it, I don't know. Like diabetes went from what it was to what it is now in like 15 years. It was su- it's such a leap over the last 15 years. And it, it, it's just, I don't know, it's its changing people's lives. Arden would really- not have, well, she would not have had the same experience without the stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important for me, you know, even if I couldn't really afford the both of them, you know, I'd honestly have to get rid of the pump because 
with the with the Dexcom, you know, if I'm on a crime scene, my most recent one was actually a homicide. And I'm, I was on that scene for 14, 15 hours. Wow. I have to be able to see my numbers and I might not be able to take my gloves off and go prick my finger in the corner necessarily. I mean, obviously I have understanding coworkers. I probably could, but you just never know what situation you're going to be in, how long you're going to be on these scenes. So the the Dexcom is so important, especially because I can just look on my phone real quick. Yeah, Haley, I think what's more likely is that what would happen is what used to happen to people, which is you would keep your blood sugar higher so that you didn't get, Mm -hmm. or you would just go and go and go until you felt dizzy and they eat way too much food and drive your blood sugar back up again and have an A1C in the sevens or eights because you can't see anything. And I, the point you made, I mean, I'd make the same point. I don't want my daughter not to have a a pump, but if you had to give one of them back, it's a reasonable decision to make. Like, you know, I don't know. It's kind of a false choice, but for some people, but, but still the points there is that seeing your blood sugar and the speed and the direction, and that's the, that's the first step, right? And then after that, I mean, look at it. That thing's talking to your pump. Your pump's giving you insulin when you don't bolus for a meal. Like, it's freaking amazing, you know? Yeah, and nowadays, if you do the update on the Tandem, you can give yourself insulin from your phone. Yeah. You don't even have to pull your pump out of your pocket anymore, which I think for somebody like me is definitely a necessity. Yeah, no, of course. Yeah, that's really, uh, it's wonderful. I don't know. I, re- I really appreciated you coming on and talking about this. Thank you. Really great of you to take the time. You you listen, but not that much, right? Yeah, I do. I I try to listen on my drives. Okay, um, but I I choose like the specific episodes that definitely direct into like what I need. You're more of like a management listener, or do you like the community stuff too? Yeah, I would say more of the management. You know, I I haven't really dived in. I think to the community episodes enough yet, so mm-hmm. I'll definitely have to check those out, and especially the thyroid ones. Are you in the Facebook group? I am. Okay. Yes. Up in the feature tab, there's lists of all the series. The Defining Thyroid series is is I think it's great because I don't think people talk about it enough. But there's an episode yeah. within it, uh, episode four thirteen. It's called Thyroid Disease Explained with the mm-hmm. doctor that actually manages the people in my family's thyroid, and awesome. uh, she's just terrific. And then the Pro Tip series. And I and there's also an algorithm. Have you ever listened to? I'm finding one. Hold on, I'm actually looking. Episode 662 is called Control IQ Ninja. You might really, Ooh. you might like that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I'll have to check that one out I for pre- sure. I appreciate you doing this very much and being so honest. Like you were just like, you know, nobody comes on a <laughs> podcast about diabetes expecting to be like, yeah, I, yeah, I just got divorced. So um, <laughs> it, was, it was nice of you to 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 be so honest while you were talking too. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's been fun. Thank you. Hold on one second for me, okay? Okay. All right. Hey, huge thanks to Haley for coming on the show and sharing her story with us. And of course, we want to thank Omnipod for sponsoring this episode of the Juicebox podcast. Find out more about the Omnipod 5 or the Omnipod Dash at omnipod.com forward slash juicebox. And when you're ready to buy, use that same link to get started or to ask for a test drive. Don't forget to check out the private Facebook group, Juicebox Podcast, Type 1 Diabetes, 40,000 members. It's an incredible place. You will learn something there or help somebody. Juicebox Podcast, Type 1 Diabetes, doesn't matter what kind of diabetes you have, you're welcome there. Thank you so much for listening.
I'll be back very soon with another episode of the Juice Box Podcast. A diabetes diagnosis comes with a lot of new terminology, and that's why I've created the Defining Diabetes series. These are short episodes where Jenny Smith and I go over all of the terms that you're going to hear living with diabetes, and some of them that you might not hear every day. From the very simple bolus up to feet on the floor. Don't know the difference between hypo and hyper? We'll explain it to you. These are short episodes. They are not boring. They're fun. And they're informative. It's not just us reading to you out of the dictionary. We take the time to chat about all of these different words. Maybe you don't know what a small respiration is. You will when you're done. Ever heard of a glycemic index and load? Haven't? Doesn't matter. You'll know after you listen to the Defining Diabetes series. Now, how do you find it? You go to juiceboxpodcast.com, up top to the menu, and click on Defining Diabetes. You'll be able to listen right there in your browser, or you'll see the full list of the episodes and be able to go into an audio app like Apple Podcasts or Spotify and listen to them at your pace. Download them into your phone and listen when you can. The Defining Diabetes series is made up of 51 short episodes that will fast forward your knowledge of diabetes terminology.